You are listening to the Passion City Church Podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. Uh, My son's name is Isaiah. The name itself means God is salvation. God is salvation. Whenever I look at him, I think God is salvation. It's a reminder to me. His grandfather, my father, says, Isaiah, preach the gospel. And that's what Isaiah did. Many times people weren't listening. Many times people wanted to get rid of Isaiah because he told the truth to a nation of Judah who was far from the truth. But Isaiah, through his visions, spoke what God gave him to speak. Isaiah ministered from about 740 BC to 680 BC. For 20 years, he spoke to both the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. After Israel fell to the Assyrians in 722, he then, BC, he then focused solely on the people of Judah. A little bit of background, if you're not familiar with where we're gonna be diving into the text. The children of Israel had been in the promised land for about 700 years at this point. The first 400 years in Canaan, they were ruled by the judges. You remember the judges, that strong dude named Samson that killed a bunch of people with a jawbone, him, you know, Deborah, Gideon. The judges ruled the people for the first 400 years while they were in Canaan. Then they said, we want a king. So for 120 years, kings such as Saul, David, Solomon ruled the people. After the split, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, Israel had 18 kings, all of them were wicked. And I mean bad, bad. I mean bad, bad, bad. You think our presidents are bad and all that type of stuff? No, these folks were bad, bad. In Judah, there was a mix, some good, some bad. So when Isaiah enters the scene, Israel and Judah are facing continuous threats from Egypt, from Assyria, and from a nation called Babylon who will one day take them into exile. But they were mistreating people within their own communities. The Bible talks a lot about how there was so much injustice that was happening, how how people who did not have power were being abused by those who had power. And it was in this context that God tells Isaiah he needs to speak because God saw how his image bearers were being treated within the church, within his own community within the people that were supposed to be following after him. And so God tells Isaiah to speak. If you have your Bibles or read on the screen, or I have a friend that says, if you have a really, really good memory, (laughs) flip in the Rolodex of your mind to Isaiah chapter one, one through 20. We are going to read 20 verses of scripture, buckle up, and it's in the Old Testament, super buckle up. (laughs) Reading from Isaiah chapter one. These are the visions that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw these visions during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I have raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owners, and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? Your head is injured 
and your heart is sick. You are battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, and infected wounds without any soothing ointments or bandages. Your country lies in ruins and your towns are burned. Foreigners plunder your fields before your eyes and destroy everything they see. Beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-in to a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of us, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord. I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of, the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to parade through the course with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath, and your special days of fasting, they are sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. This is God speaking to his people, by the way. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now. Let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. Those are some harsh words, aren't they? If I had to title what I was going to say today, it would be redeeming the religious, redeeming the religious. Who are the religious? In this case, the religious are God's people. They're the people that he brought out of Egypt. You remember the story? He, he through the plagues, he delivered them. He brought them into Canaan. He, he conquered their enemies. He gave them the temple. He gave them a bunch, a long, a long list of rules to follow. He gave them celebrations all because he wanted to set them apart. He wanted them to be sanctified, different from the people that they were around. Much like us, he wants them to be in the world, but not of the world. He wants them to have some distinct measures, some distinct characteristics about them that set them apart from everybody else around them. And it seems in this passage that they're continuing to run the plays. They're continuing to do the festivals, the new moon festivals. They're continuing to do the sacrifices. They're doing all the things that God told them to do, but their heart was way over here. Their heart wasn't matching up with their actions. They were duplicitous in a lot of ways, aren't we? If you looked on the outside, as many of the other nations did at Israel, they would say, man, those people have a religion, but they are far from being righteous. God's holiness demands perfection. What we see about God here is that his holiness demands a certain level of 
perfection. You know, sometimes we get that confused. We think that because it's 2022, and if you watch this in 2024, it'll be the same then, that because we've moved to a certain level of enlightenment, we get to determine what's good and what's right and, and really what's holy. And God says, no, I've already told you. Our kids have started going back to school and they all want to get 100 on the test. And you know, sometimes your child comes in and they've got a 99 and it's like, Ugh, you're almost there. That's what God says. I, you got to score 100 with me. Not 99 is still, a, is still a failing grade. It's not, it's, it's not 100%. On your best day, you're not good enough to fulfill God's holiness. In verse four, he calls them a sinful nation, burdened with guilt or iniquity and evil people. He calls them corrupt children. These are people God loves. Yet, his holiness always demands perfection. In the book of Amos, um, there's a familiar word to me now. It wasn't before. So we moved here from Boston a little while ago and we're actually building a house. Pray for us. We're building a house. We didn't want to build a house. We had illusions of grandeur. We're going to retire from the NFL. We're going to move down south somewhere, probably to Georgia. We're going to find like this perfect house in a perfect neighborhood with the perfect church and this, that, and the other. Everything's just going to be perfect. It wasn't that way, so now we're building a house. One thing I know about a house is, I've learned, is that the walls must be straight. Got to have a good foundation. But your walls better be straight. In the book of Amos, one of the ways that architects or builders, and if you're in here, if I butchered this, I'm sorry, used to make a wall straight, they used something called a plumb line. Again, I didn't know what this was until I started building a house, but a plumb line is, is literally a string that's held up and there's a weight at the bottom. The weight, because of gravity, pulls the line straight. You judge how straight the wall is by the plumb line. You don't judge how straight the wall is by the other walls. You judge how straight the wall is by the plumb line. In the book of Amos, he had a vision of God holding a plumb line to test his people. He said, I will no longer ignore sin. This is the plumb line. This is the standard. Family, we all have to live by that standard. God's holiness demands perfection. Also, he demands that we be cleaned. In these verses, it says, Wash yourselves and be clean is what he tells the people. I'm sick of your disgusting acts. I'm sick of your sin. Wash yourselves if you want to come around me and be clean. But you know what he also does? He says, you know, I'll clean you, I'll clean you up. I'll do it. He, he's not leaving the people by themselves to their own devices. He doesn't leave us by ourselves. He doesn't tell us, you know, to come in the church, you better have not be doing this. Don't be doing this. Don't look at this. Don't say this. Now you can come in the church in my presence. No, he says, come to me and I will clean you. If you have a willing heart, the same thing he says to the people. He demands that we be cleansed, but he does it for us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Some of you were once like that, weren't we? Amen, wall. Or big screen. Amen, big screen. Some of us were just like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy because God has a standard. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you hear anything about God's holiness, hear that he has a standard, but that we are cleansed by calling on his name. We're cleansed by his spirit. We're not cleansed with, by our own volition. We're not cleansed by our own power. If we could be, what would we need God for? Secondly, we see about God that God's heart bends toward the vulnerable. God's heart always bends toward the vulnerable. Why? Why does he care? Like, wh wh why is he chastising his own people in this passage because of how they're treating others? Like, why does, it, why does it even matter? I mean, seriously, have you ever thought about why does it matter that we treat people right? Is it just because that's the cool thing to do? I mean, is it just because, like, I mean, if you go back 100 years, maybe it wasn't the cool thing to do to treat certain people right. I mean, why does it matter? Going way back, we talk about people bearing the image of God. We see in Genesis, so God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. We are image bearers of God. Later it says that Adam had a son in his own likeness. So through God creating Adam and then Adam procreating, we are by default made in the image of God. Now that image is shattered like a mirror. We don't see through it very clearly right now. There's some problems with our image because of sin. But it matters how we treat the vulnerable because they bear the image of our creator. See, people are different than the animals. We have a different type of value. Whether you are from the East or the West, whether you're rich or poor, no matter your economic situation or your education, people have a different type of value. The man or woman that you see begging has the same value as someone who is a czar or a president or has ruled an entire empire. Their value is the same before God. That's why it mattered to God because when his people were inflicting injustice on the people in, their, in Judah, they were attacking his image. How dare you attack my image? How dare you attack the people that I, that I breathe life into? It is not just there, Jeremiah 9, Micah 6, 8. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are so many laws that outline how the people ought to protect widows, protect the poor, protect aliens, protect orphans. We think about the book of Ruth. What happened in Ruth was God's design to protect those who did not have a male covering in that day. God had people who had land to leave the outskirts, to leave a little bit behind when they harvested not because he didn't want them to have all that was theirs. No, because he knew that there were others who may need some sustenance. He knew that I was going to build into my, into my people a care for vulnerable people groups. One of them was the widow. So when a vulnerable person, Ruth in this example, comes along, she has something to glean. There was the year of Jubilee where every 49 years, land was returned to the original owners to prevent generational poverty. 
So you could have land, you could sell it, you could gain wealth, but every 49 years, there was like a reset button. God said, you know what, don't get too much because some people are being left far behind. I'm going to reset for you. My point here is that God cares and he shows in his law that he cares for vulnerable people. So God's holiness demands perfection. God's heart bends toward the vulnerable. What does this verse say about us? What does this section say about us? Number one, our religion, our religion is not a substitute for a relationship. Our religion, meaning our, our, our set of rules, our faith system, the mores that we abide by, all of that is never a substitute for relationship. In verse 15, he says, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. What is God saying there? He's saying that there's no relationship with you people. Prayer is an evidence of our relationship with God. You talk to... You talk to people you care about, right? People that care about you listen to you, right? You know, I inherited a gene from a man named Adam. Most men in here inherited this gene, G-E-N-E. I have trouble pushing in drawers and closets. Drawers, closets, I don't close them, cabinets. Um, it's like I don't... I literally get something out of the kitchen cabinet, get a glass. I thought I closed it, but I come back later and Kirsten's like, this boy still ain't closed the cabinet door. She's always, am I the only, I'm the only man. I, I inherited it from Adam. I'm blaming him. It was passed down all the way from Adam, then through Noah, through my father, father to me. But if I pushed in the drawers and closed the cabinets, let's say I did all those things, but I avoided intimacy with my wife. I didn't listen to her, to her when she had concerns, or I didn't want to know how her day was, or I didn't ask how she felt. I didn't care when she had a migraine headache. I, 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 didn't, I didn't hug her when she was sad. I didn't speak her love language. You know, there's five of them. I, I didn't do any of those things to her, but I closed the cabinets. I pushed in the drawers. I picked my drawers up off the floor. I did all that stuff there will be no relationship. In that case, I would have great religion. I'll be doing everything I was supposed to do, but there will be no intimacy. God's looking at the people of Judah through Amos and, he, and he's saying, I, I don't want to hear your prayers. I don't want to hear it. You're doing the things that I told you to do, but your heart is so far from me. When you lift your hands and pray, I can't hear you. I can't hear you till you get your heart right. Our religion is not a substitute for a relationship. Secondly, our religion is futile without obedience to God's commands. Our religion is futile without obedience to God's commands. Faith without works is a useless currency in God's economy. Faith without works is a useless currency in God's economy. Now, let's, let's be sure. We're not saved by our works. You've heard this. We're saved by faith. But your works are an outflowing of your faith. James puts it like this in James 1.27. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father 
means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So James says that true religion is expressed with faith and works. Caring for orphans and widows, what does that mean for us? Yes, maybe orphans and widows, but maybe those who have experienced some sort of other injustice, maybe those who are coming out of a criminal legal system, maybe those overseas who are dealing with trafficking or here domestically are dealing with trafficking. Uh, but maybe it's those who, who are, are dealing with a, a whole host of injustices that this country has levied on people groups in this community. Maybe it means that. Pure religion in the sight of God means caring for orphans and refusing to let the world corrupt you. The gospel produces a concern for injustice and our actions that address injustice gain credibility for sharing the gospel. You've heard it said before that sometimes people don't care what you know till they know how much you care. What James would say is that our religion is nothing without obeying God's command. Uh, Our obedience provides an on-ramp. And what was happening in Judah was that people weren't hearing from God because of the injustice that was going on. That leaves us with really two questions that I want us to dwell on in our last couple minutes. Ask yourselves, is your behavior representative of people who God has made clean? Is your behavior representative of people that God has made clean? I I, I love this verse. It says, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Now, the color red, go dogs, was, was, was very difficult to come by in those days. Uh, to, to get red, to get scarlet, there was a double dying process, not dying process, but dying, like dying thread. It, it, you dyed it once, you let it dry, then you dyed it again, and you got this deep crimson red color that was impossible to get out. Like it, it permeated all the fibers of the material that you were dying. And so w- when you had some cloth that was red, you knew that there was a process that got it that way. You also knew that would not be easily removed. As a matter of fact, it's darn near impossible to remove a red stain from a garment. And so when God says your sin is like scarlet and I will make it white, that was astonishing. How? How are you gonna take what's in the fiber of my being the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short. We were, we were born with the sin nature. Our being is, is through and through sinful. It's ugly. It's nasty. It's corrupt. It's everything that God said to the people of Judah. That's what he would say about us in our sin. It's through and through. How are we going to remove that? It infiltrates everything we do. It infiltrates our thought process, our desires, our actions. It's through and through. But then God says, I will make them as white as wool. I'll do it. How does he do it? Through the blood of his son. 
The Apostle John puts it like this in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So number two, and this is probably the most important question that should have been before number one, but have you settled with God? He says in verse 18, come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Not come tomorrow. He said, come now. Now is the time of salvation. Come now. I'm here. Come now. Another version, another version says, come now, let's, let's reason together. The idea there is you've got your idea, I've got my idea. Let's come into this safe space where there's no pretension, where I'm not judging you. And he's saying, come now, let's reason, let's struggle together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. Let's reason together. I'm here for you now. Jesus is here for you now, saints. He's here for you now. I remember living in Boston, Massachusetts, and it's snowing. Speaking of snow, it was snowing outside. I pulled up from practice one day, and I'm about to go into our house. And I noticed this plastic bag that was in front of my garage. And for some reason, I'm ashamed to admit this, I was like, this ain't my trash. Why is it in front of my garage? So I looked at my neighbor's garage and I was like, it's probably theirs. So instead of picking up the trash in front of my garage, I, and there's snow on the ground, I picked up the plastic bag, walked over to the other garage, put it there. I'm not dealing with that. Walked back to my house. When I got to my house and was about to go in the door, I looked back and there's evidence of what I did all over the place. I got footsteps coming from my garage and they weren't just from the car. It was obvious that I did something that I probably shouldn't have done. I, I walked over there, so I had footsteps. Then I'm like, oh man, I got footsteps. If they come out, they're gonna see that this dude next door to us didn't just pick up the trash, he put it in front of our garage. I said, all right, well now I gotta, now I gotta clean this up because I gotta cover up my mistakes here. And I go back and, uh, and now it looks like somebody was doing snow angels. I go in the house, didn't tell my wife. It's the first time she's heard of this. The next morning I came out, I didn't see the trash bag. I didn't see my footsteps because there was a fresh coat of snow. The snow had covered up my transgression. The snow had covered up me trying to cover up my transgression. The snow had covered up my footsteps. The snow had made it as if I didn't do anything that I wasn't supposed to. In some respects, it gave me a new start. I will make you as white as snow. The blood of Jesus covers our transgressions. And the Bible says, if you put your faith and trust in him, you will receive eternal life. And eternal life is in heaven, yes, but it starts now. It is knowing God and Jesus whom he sent. The invitation, the invitation is for now. 
If you don't know the Lord, he says, come now. Don't wait. Now's the time of salvation. Let's pray. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.